0: All right, so Colossians 2, verses 16 through uh, 23. I'll read that now. And then um, you have your handout. Uh, Andrew's making some more copies, so if you don't have one, he'll be bringing some in uh, in just a moment. Um, but on your handout, uh, for those of you who haven't been here before, what you have is just the quotes that I use. Um, me personally, as a student, It is very taxing when a teacher reads a quote and I cannot see the quote uh, because some people don't know really how to read well um, in a way that helps people follow along so um, you don't have to be the judge of my ability to read. Uh, You get the quote right in front of you. And then I have other notes here on my handout. Now, I'll always say that if you'd like a copy of my notes, Just let me know, and I can email those to you uh, as well, because as you see by the page numbers, they're always progressing. I keep all of this in one document, so I can send you everything uh, that I have, if you'd like to have it. Um, Okay, so Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come, but the body or the substance is Christ or is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Amen. All right. So, remember, Colossians is uh, one of the letters where Paul is directly confronting false teaching. And uh, just like in Galatians, Here in Colossians, Paul is very specific. He gives us the actual issues that were being faced. Last time, uh, we looked at in uh, verses uh, 6 to 15, um, an outline of the passage and how Paul was calling them to continue to walk in Christ, not to be turned away, and then he gave all these various reasons. So when he gets to verse 16, our first verse today, and he says, Let no man therefore judge you, what he's pointing back to is all of this truth about walking in Christ, this freedom that they have in Christ, this sufficiency of Christ the Savior. Because that is true, you ought not to let any judge you. Now, when we read that, we kind of think of the world outside. And there's you know a bit of truth to that, but the point that Paul is making is within this very divided church, within this church that was filled with false teaching or they were tempted to give in to false teaching, he's talking about within those congregations because there were leaders in those churches who were arguably judging people based on things like he brings up in verse 16. Um And when I say judge, Uh, let me remind you about what the Bible says about judging, uh, where Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not lest you be judged, right? Um, But that's also, uh, Jesus is is speaking uh, in a way that uh, would have really connected with his hearers because the Pharisees and Sadducees and all those that were the leaders of the time, the, the pastors and elders of the churches, if you want to call them that, they were judging people based on requirements that were not laid out in Scripture. Because the reason it's important to say that is because you turn around in 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul literally tells the churches to judge one another in their midst. Jesus goes on in the gospel to say, Judge, or you know, a tree by its fruit. Right? So there's a type of judging that's wrong, and there's a type of judging that's right. And what Paul is saying here is these people were being uh, subjected to teachers who were judging them improperly, and what they were judging them based on was their worship of angels or not, whether they voluntarily humbled themselves, meaning like speak of, think of voluntary there in like volunteer sense, right, where they willingly chose to participate in this humility though like the new king james as the word false in verse uh verse 18 right no false humility because that's that's what it is but the idea of it being voluntary is there as well Uh, but let's talk about these things that paul brings up uh, each thing there in verse 16. first he mentions meat don't let anyone judge you in meat don't let anyone judge you in drink don't let anyone judge you in respect of Holy Days or of the New Moons or of the Sabbath days. Okay? What does that remind you of, that list? <laughs> the, I remember all the Catholic kids on Friday when we'd eat meat and they couldn't. Right, yep. That's a modern application. Yep, very good. And most uh, commentators connect it to that. But in the original context, these errors that these Colossian Christians were facing, what are these things probably referring to? Paul had to address the issues of what was acceptable food when food was being considered mm-hmm. by the Old Covenant statutes mm-hmm. of not being pure, Right. but also uh, food that was concerned about whether it was being offered to idols mm-hmm. in the process, so Paul right. had to address that earlier on. Yeah. Right, so what you have here, like we brought up earlier in chapter 2, is kind of a blending of uh, pagan errors and Jewish errors, right? Where they're trying to continue uh, to place the Christians under this yoke of the Old Testament. Um, and when he says meat, drink, or holy days, new moons, Sabbath days, what he's referring to specifically there, the terminology he's using is referring to Old Testament under Moses, right? Because they would have had all those things, right? You know, you read the Levitical laws. You can't eat or touch certain things. Um, You can't drink certain things. Uh, You have to observe this certain calendar, Um, and the new moons would be included in that, and uh, Sabbath days as well. We'll get into those more as we go. Let's get into this first quote here uh, to um, try to help us draw out some Usefulness uh, to this. It says, uh, should be the very first one on your handout from John Davenant. It is the duty of Christians when ceremonial rights are imposed on them under the plea of necessity. Now, think there about this error in verse 16 having an effect in the worship of the church, right? So, a ceremonial right is a right or an action or a behavior that relates to worship, right? Whether it's in the context of worship itself or something outside of worship, like you touched a dead body so you're no longer allowed to enter. Those kind of things are in view here. It's the duty of Christians when those things are imposed on them under the plea of necessity, righteousness, or merit, meaning you have to follow these ceremonies, or you're not righteous, it's the duty of Christians to reject the same and to despise those masters of ceremonies. Meaning, those people who tell you to do that, you are to reject that teaching and despise it. But, as therefore, Christian modesty enjoins us to obey clergy when they prescribe decorous rites, or decorous rites, uh for the sake of order so christian liberty enjoins us to withstand the same when they impose their traditions under the plea of worship or of necessity for salvation now he's kind of getting into what was going on at the reformation but he's also talking about what paul is addressing here because he's commenting directly on this verse let me give you a summary there as i said earlier if someone tells you that you must follow whether it be an Old Testament ceremony or a purely man-made ceremony, in order to be righteous, and it's contradictory to Scripture, you despise it. You reject it. Right? Uh, for instance, like uh, a lot of people still think that Christians can't drink alcohol. Right? You despise those things. Whether you drink it or not is up to you and your conscience before the Lord. But you can't impose unbiblical things on somebody as a way of righteousness. Then he says in the middle that Christian modesty does require us whenever there are what you might call neutral ceremonies uh, where you should submit to those, right? Like um, an example would be that we sing out of a hymnal, right? Right? rather than singing from a screen. You don't raise your fist in the congregation and say, I can't see, we must sing from a screen, or something like that, right? It's just the way the thing is being carried out. Um, Another thing would be, uh, that was a big debate among the Puritans, would be when, in the Church of England, a child was baptized, the, the priest, the pastor, would do the sign of the cross over the baby, right? You know, a lot of the Puritans argued that that was a impinging upon their conscience and something that must be uh, rejected. So they were dealing with that kind of stuff as well. But Christian liberty is what gives us not just the freedom, but the requirement to reject things that are imposed upon us, especially as it relates to worship, that are not required in Scripture. One of the ways that Presbyterians especially have been very prickly on this, would be their insistence on the rejection of the church calendar. This is traditionally a very Presbyterian thing. We don't follow the church calendar. Now, when I say we, I'm speaking out there. We do here at our church, modestly, not in a, a over-the-top fashion, but you, to submit to the church calendar in the way that we practice it here at Grace It's just like submitting to a sermon series, right? Because all it does is determine, more or less, what is being preached on, what our hymns are going to be about and the psalms that we read and sing and all those things. So it's an important context to see or an important concept to see that when Paul says, don't let anyone judge you or impose these things on you, that there is a category of things that are not imposing upon you. As long as those things are not being required for uh, righteousness or merit or anything like that, then you're free in Christ to practice them or to not. Um, and this quote from Davin, it's a great summary of what Paul is driving at and showing the nexus, the center point of the error in the church of Colossae. When he says, Let no man therefore judge you, etc., etc., notice the Jewishness of this list. It makes you think of the ceremonial and the calendrical or calendrical, however you say, I say calendrical laws of the Old Testament. The issue was not so much the observation of those things, because remember in Romans, Paul also says you're free to do this, right? Whether you eat or drink is up to you and your conscience. Whether you follow this day or not is up to you and your conscience. But these people in Colossae were judging others based on it. You're not a Christian because you don't do this. Now, We do have a list of things in the Bible where that can be said, but when it's things outside of the Bible or things like verse 17 would point to, things that have been fulfilled that are shadows now that Christ has come, that is not okay. So the requirement of observation of those things as a means of salvation is what Paul is addressing. When these Ceremonial matters and others are imposed as necessary to fulfill all righteousness. They are to be rejected and despised. However, like I said, there are certain matters that can be utilized for the sake of order. Davenant calls those things, those who would implement these practices, masters of ceremonies. We just call them pastors and elders. The next quote is from Calvin, should be the very next thing under Davenant on your handout. He says, but someone will say, we still keep up some observance of days, I answer, that we do not by any means observe days as though there were any sacredness in holidays. Notice what he says there. We don't observe days in this way, is what he's saying. Right? Because remember, that in the Jewish calendar, they were required on certain days at certain times to go to these places and do these actions. In Christ, those times and days, those uh, holy days, new moons, and Sabbath days, are no longer required. We don't observe days in that way or, as he says, as though it were not lawful to labor upon them. Now, again, that's an immediate application. I'll talk about it in just a second. But that respect is paid to government and order, not to days. Now, this is a very important principle that lots of pages have been written upon to explain Calvin's view here. But uh, when he speaks about not laboring upon those days, this is part of what the Puritans were objecting to when they were fighting against certain things about the church calendar, is when they would have, when things like Christmas and other days in the church calendar would fall <clears throat> during the week they were legally required in some countries not to work or like Ms. Lois said the reference to certain kinds of foods on certain days they would be imprisoned because of these unbiblical requirements that were being placed upon the people and they were being treated as if they were righteousness in order to follow them and Calvin is saying that is not a Christian way of doing things that you can have worship on those days outside of the Lord's day, but you cannot forbid people from working. You cannot require them to stop selling or uh, serving sausage on Friday at six a.m. and then they can return again on Saturday at six a.m. Right? It's just it's unchristian to do that. But he says, though, very importantly at the end. The respect that we pay to those who establish these things is a respect paid to government and orders, that is, those who are appointed over us. You see, the holiness, if you want to speak of it that way, in Christian times in which we live, comes from the fact that we have people ruling over us and establishing these things. And we respect them, and we submit to that order. But the holiness that these Colossians were facing was not a holiness that comes from those who established them. They were trying to bring back the Jewish calendar where the holiness is inherent in the days itself and the acts of those things. This is a a Reformation example with the same overarching point that Davenant is making. Now, many will use this to try to do away with what we call the Christian Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, and I don't think that's correct, and I'll tell you uh, a couple of reasons. In uh, verse 16, um, it's important to note that the Sabbath days, that's what the King James says, or Sabbaths, notice it has an S on the end, is the proper rendering here. Now, why do I say it's proper? Because the term in the Greek is Plural. It doesn't say, let no one judge you of the Sabbath. It says the Sabbaths. Now, the reason that's important is because you know that there was a Sabbath started at creation. But once the Old Testament calendar was established and the temple was built and all those things, there were also multiple Sabbaths that were instituted at various points in the year. They even had a yearly Sabbath where certain lands were required to rest and all those things. The ESV translates as a Sabbath, which is fine, so long as you don't understand it to be canceling out the Sabbath principle laid out in the Decalogue. So these extra Sabbaths, these extra required days of rest, is what Paul is aiming at because the error was a certain type of, of Jewishness, as it were. It wasn't a emphasis on creation ordinances. There's nothing about holiness related to meat or drink or certain days or certain new moons or extra Sabbaths that is included in creation. But there is a Sabbath principle, not to mention the unity of the Ten Commandments that is upheld throughout Scripture. Many Sabbath days were imposed within the ceremonial period of the Old Testament. That seems to be what is being pointed at. And the logic of Paul's teaching flows right into his point within Colossians, which we talked about uh, some last time in the time before. And you can look at chapter 2, verse 4 and 8, where Paul calls on them to not be brought under a yoke that would draw them away from Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says... And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. So lest any man should trick you and draw you away from Christ or deceive you. And then in verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, etc., etc., not after Christ. So this is part of that body of teaching. This marker writes good. Like you could see the, the false teaching. That's not great, but if you want to imagine it as a circle and then the truth in Christ here, right? you don't want to be drawn away from Christ into that false teaching. You know, Paul is trying to draw them back from that into this. So, within this body of false teaching, you had things like uh, the, the Jewishness issues, um, vain philosophy, uh, enticing words, and all those things that were drawing them away from the truth in Christ, and Paul is uh, calling them back. Um, our next quote there uh, this is from 51, this is uh, G.K. Beale. Uh, It says, uh, saints cannot be judged by keeping extraneous and outdated Old Testament temple laws because we are to live only by faith in Christ. We have already been judged through identification with Christ's death, who suffered judgment on our behalf. See chapter 2, verse 14. Furthermore, the cleanliness required for entrance into God's presence comes through being in Christ and not through Old Testament laws, dealing with diet, or special holy or holidays. You see what he's saying there? They are requiring, because they are judging people, right? When you think of judging in a negative sense, it's this idea that these people are, to use a modern term, gatekeepers. Right? You still have those today, theological gatekeepers that tells you what is... Uh, reformed and and what is not, um, but what he's saying here, rightly so, is that saints cannot be kept from the kingdom. They cannot be kept from worship. They cannot be kept from God because they are in Christ, and Christ has fulfilled all these things. The shadows were those things. Christ is the substance. Christ is the body to use some language that we talked about in men's Bible study a few weeks ago. Uh, Christ is the anti-type, and all these other things were but the type, or you could put shadow and substance here. All right. So you got Christ, and you've got the error. Now, I'll come back to this in a moment, but I feel like I need to bring it up now because of the way I just wrote that. That does not mean that when these things were originally taught, that they were errors. right? When these Jewish things under the Old Testament were in play, they were types, they were shadows, but they weren't erroneous. But once you're living in this time, this time period, to go back to them is an error. That's the whole message of the book of Hebrews as well, right? To go back to those would be not just like a small error, but denying Christ, right? You're free to observe them in certain ways so long as you don't require them for salvation of yourself or for others. And that's why he says saints cannot be judged by keeping these things because they are extraneous and they are outdated Christ has brought us into the substance and I love what he does here in this next is very short little quote he says we are clean so we can't be judged we are clean to enter into temple worship that's heavenly worship because Christ has circumcised us and that's verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 verses or chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, we're talking about the circumcision of Christ, that if they wanted to play that game, as it were, that we have to do these Old Testament things, those in Christ have already been circumcised and brought in. And the circumcision with Christ that we talked about last time is ultimately displayed on the cross, where he says in verse 11 and 12, "In whom in Christ, you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through faith. I'm not going to go back and entertain those verses if you want to uh, get into that. I'd point you to the audio uh, that I've uploaded just because we got to get through the rest of this. Um, so the next quote, again from G.K. Bill. he says, The main point of verses 16 to 23 is that saints, Christians, should not be required to submit to extraneous laws of bodily discipline, because that's what these things were, in order to experience God's tabernacling presence. Think John 1 there. Uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. The reason for this, the reason why those things should not be required is because only faith in Christ brings us into God's holy presence. What they were trying to teach was a certain type of old body discipline, bodily discipline, that was a shadow, but the substance had come, so those things are no longer required, so you're free in Christ and you enter into God's presence through him, not through this bodily discipline. You see, bodily discipline is actually very key to understanding this section. If you look at verse 21, he says, touch not, taste not, handle not, right? All of those things are bodily things. Those were issues that they were facing that people were telling them, well, you can't touch this, you can't taste that, you can't handle that. Let me take a rabbit trail real quick, and then I'll come back to uh, some important phrases that are repeated and paralleled in this, this section. Part of the benefit of Sunday school, Bible studies, and personal Bible study in general, is that of familiarizing yourself with the overarching narrative of Scripture. You see, Paul's points in Colossians are not so about Colossae that we can't relate to them, because he's drawing on the overarching narrative of Scripture. Certain types of preaching can help us to see this overarching narrative of Scripture, but that, that can't be the only way we preach. We have to zone in on certain things and certain details. And the reason I bring this up about familiarizing yourself with the overarching narrative of Scripture and knowing the flow and theme of certain books. Yesterday, uh, Roxanne and I were sitting in uh, a, a little restaurant in Charleston, and we overheard this girl uh, summarizing the book of Ruth to uh, a gentleman. Uh, who was of crooked persuasion, um, but she was summarizing the book of Ruth to him. And I, I was really impressed. I mean, she it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. Um, it was faithful to the text. She summarized it in, a, in about 30 seconds. And I, I wondered um, about our congregation and, and even about myself, could I do that? Right? If I just was trying to teach someone in 30 seconds or a minute, and I just had just a second to talk to them. Could I explain to them what the, uh, what Exodus is about and how it connects to Christ? What, uh, you know, the book of Psalms is, what Colossians is about, right? Because, you know, sharing the gospel is something that we're required to do in our own ways as the Lord provides us opportunities, But we need to be able to do it in a way that connects with the text of Scripture. Jesus loved me and died for me is nice and good, and we need to talk about that. But we need to be able to talk about the text of Scripture. We have an abundance of resources, an embarrassment of riches, and we need to take advantage of those things because it will help us avoid false teaching like uh, they faced. So let's get back to... Uh, The text here there's two uh, things I want to draw your attention to Uh, in verse 17 uh, the King James uh, says the body is of Christ Um, and then also in verse 23 it speaks of neglecting of the body right so when he speaks here he's showing this kind of transcendent imagery as it were this heavenly imagery that Uh, You're turning away from not just the body of truth that's in Christ, but you're turning away from Christ himself, who is the substance of these things. And he uses a similar language there. The body of truth, if you want to imagine it like this, is what Paul is drawing him back to. But if you turn to the false teaching, you turn to this, you're neglecting that body of truth, or you're neglecting uh, Christ himself. And then also in verses 18 and 23, the use of the term humility. And I've hinted at this a little bit already. But when he says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility, New King James says, in a false humility. Uh, think about it for just a moment. It, it sounds uh, quite humble. Uh, and thank you, Ms. Lois, for bringing up uh, Roman Catholics uh, because they do this. Um, and I don't know how they get away from what Paul is saying here. Um, But many people believe that part of the reason this error came in where they were worshiping angels or putting angels in a certain place uh, as mediators was because Christ is too lofty to approach himself. You need additional mediators that will help you get to Christ. You need to follow these Old Testament ceremonies in order to get to Christ. But Paul is saying you have direct access to Christ. You are in Christ. You're not in these holidays, you're not in this calendar, you're not in these old observances, you're not in these angels, you're not united to them, you're united to Christ. And you could see how it could be framed as humility, right? How could you be so presumptuous to think that you could go directly to Christ? You're a sinner. He's not. You need these other these beneath Christ but above you mediators. It's kind of like the the cult of the saints in Roman Catholicism. And then also in uh, verse 23, uh, the mentioning again of humility. These things have indeed a show of wisdom. They can be persuasive. But what they are is is will worship, man-made doctrines, and they are, quote-unquote, humility. They're false humility. Right? This is so ironic because um, false teaching is anything but humble. It is the height of arrogance to stray away from the word of God and try to devise a new message. But they frame it, some do, as a real stepping into humility. And that's what they were facing. Uh, one of the kind of sticky phrases in this uh, section as well is verse 22 where he speaks about the commandments and doctrines of men and I've kind of already addressed this as well where at some point going back to or at some point the types and shadows become erroneous but it depends on how you're using them why does he call them commandments and doctrines of men because what he's talking about again is Old Testament teaching in what way can we say that Old Testament teaching are the commandments and doctrines of men, right? Because that's, that's not a compliment, right? Where Jesus talks in the Gospels about those who uh, would require certain washings, and he says it's not what uh, enters into a man, but what comes out of him that is really indicative of who he is. Don't follow the doctrines and commandments of men is what he says at the end of that section. That's not a compliment, right? Don't follow the doctrines and commandments of men is what the overarching teaching of Scripture is. So what does Paul mean? It's outside of their proper use in Christ. That is exactly what they become, right? And that's kind of a funky way to view Old Testament teaching, isn't it? But it's what Paul is saying. Those things have lost their power and their authority as teachings that could bring you into God's presence or improve your holiness because, verse 17, the substance, Christ, has come. So you can even use the word of God in a way that makes it a commandment and tradition of men. What a thought, right? How's that? That was the whole explanation. Um, when they go back to these types and shadows, they're going back to what is Scripture, right? But when you use them improperly, right, when Christ has come, you're saying you actually had to go back. You're using the Bible in a way that is really just the doctrines and commandments of men, right? Now, as I said, when they were originally given, they weren't the doctrine and commandments of man. They were given directly by God to Moses and various servants of the past in order to bring people into the holiness of God's presence. But in Christ, if you use the Old Testament, not the Old Testament in general. When I'm saying the Old Testament here, I'm talking about this error in verse 16. When you use them that way, you are denying Christ. You're denying that the substance has come you're still living in the shadows. Now, here's something. It is for this reason that we can call Judaism a man-made religion. Because they reject the substance and follow the Old Testament as if he hasn't come. That's following the commandments and doctrines of men. To follow the Old Testament scriptures, as Jesus makes clear in the Gospels, is to embrace Jesus Christ, right? That amazing interaction that Jesus has with some of the religious leaders of his day in John's Gospel where he says, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, right? So when you use the Old Testament and don't come to Christ, you are following the doctrines and commandments of men, or to use the term that Paul uses here in, uh, what is that, verse 19. <clears throat> Following the Old Testament scripture is meant to lead you to hold the head, to latch on to Christ, from which all the body by joints and bands, all the church by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered to them and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. The false teaching of Colossae would have led them to be providing something else other than the head of all things as the source of nourishment, the knitting together of the church, and the increasing with the increase of God. You see, if that's the goal, one of the goals of Christ, one of the things that he is supposed to accomplish, that the church is to be knit together in him, that he is to be the nourishment of the church, to go back right, is the height of arrogance. It is a supreme error and something that is not to be tolerated. That's why Paul's warnings are so uh, stark and firm. Don't let any man deceive you, even though the words are enticing. Don't let any man draw you into this false humility. And the deception of false teaching in general is presented in verse 23. They have an appearance of wisdom in that they are worship that is pleasing to the flesh. They contain a measure of humility. And after all, don't the Scriptures teach a neglect of the body? But the truth of them all is that any teaching that would draw us away from the head, Christ himself, is of no value in putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You see, there's this inherent understanding of salvation that is given here. And we'll look at, very briefly, chapter 3, verses 5 to 8 in just a second. But Paul, in the the end of verse 23, draws out this um, inherent truth about uh, Christianity, and we could argue it's about uh, religions in general that uh, grasp any nature of the truth. But Christianity is meant to make us righteous. right? It's not just to declare us righteous, but Paul is understanding that they had a uh, even these false teachers had an understanding that you are supposed to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You are supposed to live a certain way. You're supposed to live in a holy fashion. But but these things that they're teaching you, they cannot get you there. They cannot get you to this holiness before God. They lead you away from Christ who brings you to holiness before God. Um. If you're looking at the New King James, uh, it says at the end of verse 23, it says that these things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And that's, that's phrased kind of strangely. The King James says it's not in any honor or, 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 or power or value to satisfying of the flesh. And this is a bit complicated, but I want to try to draw it out here for just a second. I think the difference in the terms here is important. Uh, indulgence of the flesh versus satisfying of the flesh. Indulgence, um, it, it carries kind of, especially when you're looking in the Scriptures, indulgence is kind of a negative category, right? You don't want to be overly indulgent. But satisfaction is, is not a bad thing, Right? I think they're they're really just trying to grasp with what Paul is saying, but I think the difference in the terms here is important. They say the same thing, but the difference is subtle and is probably missed because the way we read rather than because the way it's translated. The King James seems to imply that we are going to, this inherent principle of religion, naturally seek to satisfy the flesh. False teaching especially appeals to the flesh, to that sinful part of man. False teaching does that. Only truth appeals to the soul. All other appeals are to the flesh. It might be said that truth goes straight to the soul while error makes its way to the soul by way of other avenues like the flesh. Let Let me try to explain that just a second. Think about when you're counseling somebody who's in a difficult situation and all they really seem to want to believe or follow is things that make them comfortable. Right? <clears throat> Satisfying the flesh. And that begins to affect their soul. Whereas if they would embrace the truth from the get-go, it will begin to affect the way they deal with everything, because truth goes straight to the soul. It has a different uh, savory effect, uh, kind of like the imagery Jesus uses about us being the salt of the earth. It's a preservative. It has a, a long-lasting effect. False effect, excuse me. False teaching ultimately has no ability to satisfy the soul, good, or the flesh bad. Paul's saying you're trying to satisfy something that cannot be satisfied. You're indulging the flesh, and this false teaching is leading you to believe that it is helping you. And for this reason, we can look at chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, and then we'll be done uh, very quickly. He says, Because if you think about holy living, right, that religion, that Christianity is meant to lead you. To holy living, that part of the purpose of Christ is to not just take away your sin, but to give you righteousness, to make you live righteous, right? So chapter 3, verse 5 to 8, "...mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience." In the which you also walked some time when you lived in them. But now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, etc. What am I doing here? I'm drawing your attention to the fact that Christians are called to walk in this way. Verses 5 to 8, right? Put off this, mortify that, put it to death. Those things are the reason that God's wrath comes, but if you embrace this false teaching, not going to help you live this way, right? Not going to help you put to death the deeds of the flesh. Not going to help you put off all these things in verse 8. You walked in them, and you're going to continue to walk in them if you follow this path of the worshiping of angels, the giving into uh, vain philosophy and deceit, uh, this false and voluntary humility, and all those things. You see, we as Christians, we are to strive to live in holiness. But if we embrace false teaching, it will not enable us to get there. And I think you could probably think of an example in your own life. Um, I've seen this with people who were very close to me, who begin to live in a very sinful way, and it either leads them or becomes the justification for them denying Christianity altogether. Because that false teaching, whatever it is, that ultimately destroys the soul, does not lead to righteousness. It just doesn't. And it's why those uh, who are engulfed in false teaching or false religion very often, even outwardly, Live very ungodly and confusing lives because false teaching and error in general does not lead to the mortification of the flesh or the putting to death the deeds of the body Um, yes that, I'll stop right there Um, I did give you some more quotes uh, but they're just extra for you to read on your time if we had time I was going to get to them but uh, we don't have time. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Yeah, I, I see a couple things. Um, yeah, there's a lot here to think about. <laughs> a lot. Um, I'm trying to, in my mind, I'm trying to almost establish a grid in my mind of putting this stuff in. But, um, I see a lot of stuff that crosses that applies to, to denominations mm-hmm. you know, with, with, with Lisa. and and uh, you know how denominations actually embrace certain ideas that are that are really the question whether they're leading. Yeah. And, no, yeah, you're right. I mean, and the, thing, the thing about that is the way that those errors are presented is the very way that Paul addresses here. Yeah. Because they hold them out, specifically their errors, as the means to true enlightenment. As the means to true holiness. Right? What does, uh, you know, you think about the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. You know, your first couple meetings with them, they'll, they'll kind of be okay about kind of talking about the similarities between traditional Christianity and their views. But when you really get down into it, what makes Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, Mormons, is the embracing and practicing of absurdly heretical and hell uh, soul damning heresy. Right? Um, I, I would argue that uh, the very similar thing happens with Roman Catholicism. I would call Roman Catholics Christians. But when you dive into the depths of their system and what things you are literally not just taught but required to believe, is very dangerous. Very dangerous. Now, you can say, well, I'm an autonomous person. I can believe whatever I want to believe. That's fine. But you have to take vows with your fingers crossed to enter that church. I don't really believe that uh, the Pope has absolute authority over my body and soul. They do. It's on the books. Now, they have a very confused history, like everybody else, but... Anyway, just extrapolating on a, something close to me. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? All right, let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this time of study. Uh, we ask that you would uh, use these final moments before worship uh, to prepare us for it. Uh, help us to. Uh, Embrace Christ um, as he is offered to us in the gospel. Um, That we would not be tempted or drawn away by false teaching, no matter how deceitful or um, attractive the words and teachings may sound, but that we might cling to the head alone, which is Jesus Christ, and see that we have all righteousness in him, all knowledge in him, and that he leads us into eternal life he leads us into the holy presence of god in heaven we pray uh especially for our children uh that as we teach them the truths of the faith that we would live out the simplicity that is christianity not requiring of them or or seeking to bring them under any bondage uh, but uh, to teach them true liberty in christ and help us to to live consistently Uh, In that way, before all men, that we would not be given over to the doctrines and commandments of men, but uh, over to full service of the head, who is the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.